John chapter 1, starting with verse 35. Yeshua's baptism was the beginning of his ministry. Many people have ministered for God, served God in various ways. Think of Moses, think of some of the prophets, think of Jacob. This is the beginning of the greatest and most important ministry of all human beings ever, by far. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist. As Yeshua walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Yeshua. Yeshua looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, and then John gives the translation, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come and see, Yeshua said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Yeshua. Rabbi Jerry, let's start with you. What's the significance of Andrew, who is identified as Simon Peter's brother, being one of John's disciples and being one of the very first to follow Yeshua? Well, traditionally, John is identified as the other disciple. Um, and just a note about John here, it fits the text with all the specific details like hours that are mentioned, but we can't be dogmatic. But the idea here of these two disciples of John following uh, Messiah Yeshua is significant because it shows how their ministries are connected, right? So we have the ministry of John the Baptist, now we have Messiah Yeshua beginning his public ministry, and we see continuity, not just between prophecies, right? The idea of John the Baptist leading the way to Messiah Yeshua. We actually see some of his disciples beginning to follow Messiah Yeshua. And so they're following Messiah Yeshua in the way that John taught him, taught them to and wanted them to, right? John the Baptist was pointing the way. It was intended that eventually all of his disciples would follow Messiah Yeshua. Um, it's also significant here that Yeshua demands his disciples state they want to follow him and acknowledge out loud their desire. Uh, it was not just something assumed. So I think there's significance in that as well, where he says, what do you want? It, is, it seems very blunt in the English, and it's blunt in the Greek as well. Like, okay, why are you following me? He doesn't just assume. He wants them to state their desire out loud. So we have Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Simon Peter, of course, will become one of the great leaders of Messiah's community, uh, which I think is why... Andrew and Simon Peter are mentioned. And we have the second disciple who is unnamed. This unnamed disciple is almost uh, surely uh, John, 
the author of this book, who out of great humility uh, does not refer to himself by name. Andrew and the other disciple called Yeshua Rabbi, teacher. Throughout the ages, there have been many teachers, including Moses, who uh, the Jewish people refer to as Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher. Moses, our great, great teacher. Uh, Yeshua was a teacher, is a teacher, but he is not just any teacher. He is, of course, the greatest teacher who ever lived by far. He taught us the most important truths, truths about God, truths about himself, truths about salvation, righteousness, love, eternal life, truths that enable us to overcome our greatest enemies, Satan and the fallen angels, sin and the sin nature, death and hell. Not only did Rabbi Yeshua teach us the greatest truths, unlike every other teacher, he perfectly lived out the truths that he taught. He perfectly modeled the truth to everyone. All these things combined to make Yeshua the greatest rabbi, the greatest teacher, not just of Israel, but of the entire human race. If you want a good teacher, if you want truth, if you want knowledge, if you want to be taught, which you should, you need Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Glenn, what's the significance of Yeshua's invitation to come and see? Uh, and what's the implication for all of us? Well, Yeshua's invitation to those two uh, men represents something much larger. It represents an invitation to us. Uh, if anyone, anywhere, at any time desires to know the truth and desires to have a relationship with God, to know who he is, they are invited to come and see for themselves. So that it's an invitation. God is beckoning. Uh, he's not standoffish. We are welcomed to him. Also, Rabbi Lauren, uh, let me just talk about the fact that he mentions it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, when they went with him, they remained with him the rest of the day. Again, the inclusion of the time of day and the details of their staying with him lets us know that these were real events uh, rooted in time and geography and history. And also to let us know that Yeshua made such an impact on them that they remember, right? They remember when and where it happened. They they remember the exact time and circumstances of their first encounter with him. And Rabbi Lauren and I, as we were communicating about this, Rabbi Lauren thought, you know, think about how you remember where and when you first met your husband or wife, okay? You're not going to forget something like that. How much greater where you were, when it was that you met the King of Kings, Israel's Redeemer. 
And by the way, just real quick, I want to touch on something that Rabbi Jerry said. I think it is really noteworthy that when the two disciples left John the Baptist to go follow Yeshua, there is no resentment on John's part. There's none of like, wait a minute, where are you going? (laughs) What kind of loyalty is that? There's no jealousy, no resentment. He understood. This is a picture of humility. He understood his role and that he was expected to fade into the background as Messiah became more prominent. So this was a transition time between John, this great prophet who made a tremendous impact on the Jewish people. Everyone uh, in Israel and beyond the borders of Israel who were Jewish were talking about this great prophet, you know, austere life in the desert, John, and the things he was saying. So now we're transitioning from John's powerful ministry to Yeshua's even greater, more powerful ministry. Uh, Just another thought about Yeshua's invitation to these two disciples to come and see. Uh, Those two disciples had Yeshua right there, and it was a literal invitation for them to join him and, you know, get close to him and, you know, see who this man was. Well, Yeshua's not visible on earth today unless he chooses to manifest himself visibly to someone which We hear stories that from time to time he does, but that's very unusual, that's very rare. So how do we come and see Yeshua today? And the answer, of course, is interact with the Word of God, start reading the Bible, especially these four books at the beginning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start praying. I remember my first prayers when I was starting to come and see. Uh, God, if you're real, show me. Jesus, if you're really who this book says you are, (laughs) reveal yourself to me, show yourself to me, and I will follow you. So starting to read the Word of God, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, maybe the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, praying, even kind of skeptical prayers like mine. You know, if you're real, show yourself to me. This is how we come and see today. Verse 41. Andrew went to find his brother Simon. And he told him, we have found the Mashiach, the Messiah. And John adds, which means Christ, which means anointed one. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Yeshua, looking intently at Simon. Yeshua said, your name is Simon, son of John. But you will be called Cephas, Kepha, which John also translates means Peter, uh, rock. So just like we saw in today's parasha with the mysterious stranger who wrestled with Jacob and changed his name, we're seeing something very similar with uh, 
Peter and Yeshua, changes his name to Rock. Notice that Andrew understood that he had found the Messiah. Went to his brother excitedly, we have found the Messiah. All right, Messiah is an interesting word. Sometimes I think we lose sight of how wonderful that word Messiah is and all that it contains. Messiah means the anointed one. Under the Sinai covenant, there were three offices, prophets, priests, and kings. A person could be a prophet without being a priest or king, just be an ordinary person and be a prophet. Or a person could be a prophet and a priest, or he could be a prophet and a king, like King David was a prophet and king. But one one individual could never be all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. That was impossible. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil. They had oil, probably olive oil, poured on them at the beginning of their ministries. The oil was a symbol of God's blessing. Oil was wonderful, you know, uh, healing, healthy. Um, So it's a symbol of God's blessing, God's approval, and that God would be there to help them fulfill their ministry. Yeshua is all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And he was not anointed just with oil. He was anointed with the Spirit of God, of which oil is a mere symbol. He was anointed with the reality to which the symbol pointed. The Spirit of God himself came down on Yeshua, um, anointed him, filled him immersed him. A prophet is someone through whom God speaks to us in a very clear way. Yeshua is the greatest prophet. If we want to hear God speaking to us in the greatest, clearest way, we need Yeshua. A priest brings people closer to God, and brings God closer to people. If we want to be close to God the way we should, and we want God to be close to us the way uh, we should, we need Yeshua. A king brings order and justice to the lives of the people he rules. If we want order and justice in our life, and ultimately order and justice in the world, we need Yeshua. Yeshua was immersed with the Holy Spirit, and he is able to anoint others, immerse others with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God empowers us. He equips us for ministry. He transforms us from within. He guides us. He directs us. He teaches us. He gives us a new born-again nature that will live forever. If we want the Holy Spirit of God anointing us, we need Yeshua, the anointed one. 
prophet, priest, king. All of that is contained in that little idea. We have found the Messiah. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah. It should be absolutely life-changing to find the Messiah, eternity-changing to find the Messiah. Rabbi Jerry, immediately after Andrew came to the understanding that Yeshua was the Messiah, he found his brother, told his brother about Yeshua, brought his brother to Yeshua. Any lesson for us there? Well, you kind of teed me up for that, of course. I mean, obviously there is. The big lesson is we share the good news of Messiah and Yeshua with a world in desperate need of it. You know, it's telling that who's the first person he goes to grab? His brother, his family. You know, we should want to and desire to also witness to our families, um, particularly of those of us who are Jewish. That can be very difficult. It's sometimes easier to talk to a stranger about our faith than our own family. But here we see this is the correct response. We should desire to do this. And so what do we share? Well, we share what we have seen and experienced, right? That's what's going on here. Uh, he's sharing what he's experienced. And so we share it with others. And, you know, in my opinion, I think testimonies, what we've seen and experienced in our own lives or what other people have experienced in their own lives is a lot more powerful than arguing theology. And if you ask Rabbi Lauren and Rabbi Glenn, I enjoy arguing theology. Uh, <laughs> but when I witness to people, when I, 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 a couple, like a month ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who was very skeptical, believes in many different religions, uh, Indian by... Uh, 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 background, and we were talking about scripture and stuff, and I said to him, I said, listen, you know, we can argue this stuff, we can discuss this stuff, read it for yourself, exactly what we were talking about here, I said, I said, read John, read one of the gospels, I told him, read John, read it for yourself, examine what it says, and pray to God if this is real or not to reveal it to you, but I say, you know, be very careful when you pray that prayer, because you may get a response you're not expecting, and I said, when you've done that, he hasn't followed up with it, I said, when you've done that, let's talk. But until you read it for yourself, what's the point? And I think that's what's going on here is this connection here of, you know, read it for yourself, encounter God, share it with others, that encounter with God. Andrew was excited about finding the Messiah. He wanted, you know, when you're excited about something, you want to share it, right? It's, whether it's a hobby or something you like or you saw a great movie, read a great book, heard a great piece of music, you're excited about it, you want to share it with others. It's like natural for us. If we have found the Messiah and we understand what that means and who Yeshua is, there should be a desire to share that with other people, especially those who are close to us, that we love, that we want all the blessings that come from Messiah to go to them. And yet in spite of that, really a very small percentage of allegedly born-again Christians, you know, witness to other people on any kind of regular basis. I hear story after story, you know, people, especially Jewish believers saying, uh, you know, I asked uh, new, relatively new Jewish believers, um, have you told your family <laughs> about you found Messiah? Oh, no, no. Uh, I, it, 
you know, they probably won't like it. Um, I don't want to, you know, jeopardize any relationships. So, no, um, I don't want to tell my family. Wow. I mean, if he's the savior of the world and the, their only hope of salvation, and you know that, and you won't tell your family for, because of a little fear of rejection, something is seriously wrong. Andrew, first thing he did, found his brother, uh, told him about this amazing discovery. Rabbi Glenn, Yeshua looked intently at Simon and gave him a new name, Rock. What's going on? What's, what's this telling us about Yeshua? What's this telling us about Simon? Any lessons for us? Well, he's meeting Simon in person for the first time, but he already knows him through and through. And that tells us that Yeshua knows us just as intimately. He knows us. He knows our heart. He knows our thoughts. He understands our personality. And in spite of our weaknesses and failures, he knows what we can become with his help. And uh, in Simon Peter's case, there is both irony and prophecy at work. Since Cephas means rock, and let's face it, uh, Simon wasn't exactly a rock at all times. Uh, you know, think about uh, in that pivotal hour when Yeshua was being interrogated at the high priest's home. And uh, he was, Peter was questioned by some bystanders. Hey, aren't you with uh, him? He lied three times saying he didn't know him. That's not exactly a rock of a person, and yet Yeshua named him Rock. He knew that despite his failures, Peter would go on to become one of the strongest, most faithful and influential apostles of Messiah Yeshua. So he knows our personality, and he also knows what's ahead for us, who and what we can be. Next section. Yeshua finds other disciples and goes north to Galilee, verse 43. The next day, Yeshua decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew, and Peter's hometown. So, Again, John uses that phrase, the next day. Another time marker. John is taking efforts to let his readers know that this was real history, real historical events, real people. The next day. Yeshua invited another man from Galilee, Philip, to be a disciple. He did so by telling Philip, come, follow me. Rabbi Glenn, we heard Yeshua say, come and see. To uh, Andrew and the unnamed disciple, probably John. 
Now he says to Philip, come follow me. What's going on and what are the implications and lessons for us? The first thing that strikes us is that he knows these men to whom he's extending this invitation. That invitation is not going far and wide. He's selecting men, men whom he knows. He knows their interior. He knows their motive. He knows their personality. And what an honor to be asked by the Messiah to be one of his close associates. What a great honor. But the fact is, for Philip and for us, it's also an invitation to hardship. The fact is, uh, to follow him is going to cost us something. It costs us our own way and our own ambitions and our own goals, and we surrender those out of loyalty to him. It's an invitation to hardship because people are not going to understand, and some will be angry, and some will reject us. Some may even disown us. It's first an invitation to hardship, but later on, it's an invitation to glory. If we will suffer with him, we will reign with him. If we are willing to be insulted for his name, we will be honored on the other side. So when we are being invited to Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua, we are being invited first to a burden and to hardship, later on to glory. But that's the implication of this invitation. Couple thoughts. Too many times we talk about believers. We ask someone, are you a believer? And the person says, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe in God. You know, I believe, uh, you know, the Bible. And that's good. We need to be believers. We need to, you know, know the truth and, you know, believe it and be confident in it. But there are believers and then there are believers who are followers. In one sense, it's not enough to be a believer. The demons are believers, right? They know the truth. They know the word of God better than we do, I would say. Uh, But they're not followers. They are alienated from God, you know, uh, enemies of God, adversaries of God. We must go from just mere intellectual acquisition of information about Yeshua to being committed followers, obeyers, doers of, you know, uh, the Lord. So, come follow me, not just come believe in me. Yes, we're saved by faith, by understanding the truths of who Yeshua is and responding and making a commitment, it must be constantly followed up after that point with a following, with a doing, with a commitment. Philip was also far from his home city of Bethsaida. I'm sure he was there with these others uh, hearing, you know, John the Baptist. So again, 
another disciple, I would think, of John the Baptist. Uh, these men have been prepared by the great forerunner, and now they are transitioning from that great forerunner to the Messiah himself. Verse 45, Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Yeshua, which means salvation or the Lord saves, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. Uh, Rabbi Jury, um, what was wrong with Nazareth? Well, Nazareth was a small village in Galilee. We don't have a lot of historical records. In modern times, we have found more um, at one point in Biblical archaeological history, Nazareth was thought to be an invention of the Gospels, like the Hittites before them. And once again, archaeology proved scripture right, and everybody had to go back and rewrite their textbooks. But the word itself, the term Nazareth, is not connected to the term Nazarite. Those who keep Nazarite vows, a lot of people have that connection in their heads. It's, it's not meant to be there. The root of the name could be connected to Nazar, which means to keep watch, uh, Nazareth was probably like on a, on a hilltop in a great place to keep watch or keep guard, hence the name. Um, or it can mean Nezer, which means branch or shoot, which connects to Isaiah 11.1 about the Messiah who is the branch of Jesse. Another connection, particularly Matthew's gospel that's made. But what is very certain is that Nazareth had a bad reputation. In an area that was already not well liked, right? Nazareth is in the area of the Galilee. Galilee itself was looked down upon. Nazareth was looked down upon by other people in the Galilee. Now, again, we're not told exactly the issue, but perhaps it's like those today who think very badly about the Deep South, you know, uncultured, somewhere in the Deep South as a whole, and then they think even worse about a very tiny town in the Deep South. So the idea that may have been what was going on here is, you know, nothing good comes out of Galilee. Nazareth in Galilee is even more absurd. The Messiah would, would be associated in any way with this little tiny podunk town, perhaps. We would think that um, the great Messiah, the future king, the king of kings, <clears throat> Nazareth, uh, he should be living in a palace in Jerusalem, right? No. Uh, humble, obscure, <laughs> right? Which is very much um, who Yeshua was, especially his first arrival. Uh, Rabbi Glenn, Nathaniel was skeptical. Uh, any comments? Well, you know, he said to him, you know, Philip said to Nathaniel, come see for yourself. There it is again. You know, come and see that invitation. Some people are naturally skeptical. I think of Rabbi Lauren when I think of Nathaniel. It's like, mm, we'll see. You know, I want evidence. So some people are naturally skeptical. Others 
become skeptical through life's circumstances, maybe betrayal, maybe disappointment. And in that sense, skepticism is, is a way of protecting oneself from disappointment or from being taken advantage of. In any case, skeptics are invited to come and see, right? See for themselves who and what Messiah Yeshua is and what he had to say. Philip is challenging Nathaniel in a good-natured way to, to show a little bit of intellectual integrity, right? Uh, come and give Yeshua a fair hearing before you just dismiss him out of hand. And uh, I want to extend this a little bit. Today, for Jewish people, despite our having been conditioned from the time we were young to reject Yeshua, Jewish people today are still invited to come and see, to show some intellectual integrity and fairness and a little bit of courage, right? To go against the crowd for the sake of intellectual honesty. But you know what? That is exactly the kind of people God is seeking. He's not looking for people who are too afraid to act on conscience. He's looking for courageous people. Not everybody fits that bill. But nevertheless, the invitation is there for everyone today. Come and see. A lot of people are skeptical about God, the Bible today, right? Eternal life, miracles. Uh, they're skeptics. Uh, basically, most people today are, you know, atheists uh, and very skeptical of anything we have to say. Like Rabbi Jerry said before, instead of arguing with them, I think the best way to reach a skeptic is to tell them your story, how God has changed your life, and hopefully he has changed your life in a good way, and invite them to come and see. How do they come and see? Tell them to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Tell them about some of the messianic prophecies, you know, you know in the Hebrew scriptures. That's powerful. That helps people come and see. I love that little book, More Than a Carpenter, by Josh McDowell uh, for skeptics. It's filled with information and facts that they just, you know, will sit down and read that book. It really will help them come and see. So that's how I try to help people come and see. Followers of Messiah, like Philip, are to tell others about the Savior, like Philip did to Nathaniel, and not be deterred by negative responses. This was a negative skeptical response. Um, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So one of the lessons here is we are to expect skepticism. We are to expect uh, you know, not people not to just say, oh, wow, you found the Messiah, uh, you know, sign me up. We are to expect skepticism and negative responses, especially initially. We don't let that deter us. Let's discuss this very important um, idea that Philip said, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. Rabbi Jerry, any thoughts? 
Well, clearly, we, we talked about this, I think, a little bit a couple weeks ago, the idea that Moses promised that there would be a prophet greater than him that would come, somebody very, you know, in the same sort of manner in, in some ways as Moses, but in a much greater way, and all of the prophets are pointing to this. We have, you know, the Torah experts asking if John is Elijah, you know, is he the Messiah? It all points back to the Jewish people at this time were very familiar with messianic prophecy, and there was a lot of messianic expectation. There were fake messiahs like popping up every week. And so they were primed and ready for the Messiah, and now they're being told that this truly is the Messiah. But their, their understanding of the Messiah is based on these prophecies that they truly believe. You know, today most Jews outside the Orthodox don't believe in a personal Messiah. Reformed Judaism, the biggest branch in North America, believes in a messianic age that human beings will bring about. No personal savior, but we save ourselves. Tikkun olam, we can heal the world. But here we have, you know, biblical knowledge, expectation of the Messiah. Rabbi Glenn, your thoughts? You know, I've never been a fan of the expression blind faith. God is not expecting us to jettison our mind, jettison our intellect, or believe fairy tales. There is solid evidence and an abundance of it. Prophecies fulfilled to the letter. Things written thousands of years ago. So we are expected to put our faith in him, but it is a faith based very much on evidence and reason. So those prophecies stand there not just as a way for us to come to believe, but honestly, they stand there as a challenge to those who don't yet believe. You know, you're ignoring evidence. You're refusing to come into the courtroom and hear the case being presented. You've heard that side. You've heard the prosecution. You're not willing to come in and hear the defense. That, that renders you an unjust juror. You would be kicked off a jury for that. So it's a challenge, all of these prophecies. But it's also an encouragement that what I believe, and for me, it was after the fact. Um, God hit me with the, like a cosmic two-by-four in one night. I just, I knew this was true. And then in the years of study that followed it, I was affirmed again and again and again. I didn't know what I was doing. God knew. But it's, great. it's a great feeling to say, wow, what I did really was the right thing to do, even though I had no idea about all these prophecies, to find out that there is a foundation for what we believe. What a great encouragement. Everything that God does is purposeful. He gave very detailed, specific prophecies to Moses and the prophets to help us identify the most important person who ever lived, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophet, priest, king, savior, right? So there are these wonderful prophecies in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that strengthen our faith and help us really know that Yeshua is the Messiah. I remember the first time I started reading some of the Messianic prophecies. It was in that crucial 10-day period where I first heard the good news. I remember the first time I read Isaiah 53. And it was so clear to me that 
Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and this was like a detailed overview of his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, 700 years before he came. And for me, I think that clinched the deal. So knowing God gave the prophets and Moses these messianic prophecies, they should be treasures to us. We should know them. We should understand them. We should be able to use them to share with others. This shows that Yeshua is indeed the Messiah. In spite of that, I talk to Christians, occasionally a Messianic Jew. They know like none of the prophecies. It's like they're not familiar with the Old Testament in general, <laughs> sadly, and they don't know you know, a lot these Messianic prophecies, even like Isaiah 53. That needs to change, at least here. No five or ten of the clearest Messianic prophecies. If you can only dig out Isaiah 53, that's probably good too. Uh, well, it's, it's not good enough, but it's a start. All right, verse 47. As they approached, Yeshua said, Now, here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Yeshua replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then skeptical Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So he went from skeptic (laughs) to inspired believer immediately. Rabbi Jerry, what is Yeshua being able to see Nathaniel under the fig tree before Philip found him teach us about Yeshua? Well, this again shows that Messiah Yeshua had supernatural knowledge. The seeing here may refer to him, you know, being able to physically see him before he approached, but definitely also it means about a deeper spiritual knowledge he had of uh, Philip. In the same way that he had that about Simon Peter, he just had this amazing insight. Now, me and Rabbi Lawrence sometimes disagree about how long and often Yeshua had this piercing insight in everybody they met. But here we have a clear example, though, that Messiah Yeshua is exhibiting a profound supernatural ability, which, again, shows he is no ordinary man. Um, It should also be noted that this theme of Yeshua knowing way more about people or situations in a supernatural way will be repeated throughout John's gospel over and over again. And so we're being introduced to sort of this theme here in chapter 1. It should also be noted that while Nathaniel may have had a very harsh opinion about Nazareth, and he was a skeptic, he did not let that stop him from investigating and learning more about Yeshua. And so when we interact with those who are skeptical, which we should, there's a difference between a skeptic who is open to considering a new idea and those who have completely shut the door. You know, somebody who's completely shut the door, we don't need to be constantly trying to badger. If they make it clear they're not interested in a real, genuine conversation about faith, we shouldn't be wasting our time in that moment. But, you know, leaving the opportunity open down the road should they want to. But Nathaniel here exemplifies somebody who is genuinely skeptical, 
but is also interested in learning the truth. And he shows that through his actions of still coming to check out who Messiah Yeshua is, receiving that invitation, encountering him, and being willing on the spot, which is impressive, to change his mind about Messiah Yeshua after encountering him to say that he is truly the Messiah, which again shows he was genuine in his attempt to figure this out for himself. He didn't let his prejudices, sorry, prejudices or assumptions stop him from finding the Messiah. And I think a lot of times, say, particularly among our own Jewish people, that is the biggest stumbling block, is prejudices and assumptions that Yeshua isn't for Jewish people, or he taught this thing that tends to be completely untrue, or he does this thing, or his followers believe this. All these things we assume to be true based on hearsay or our own personal experiences that when we actually look into things and investigate, we find out are completely to the contrary. Whether it's a little detail about the town that he is coming from or something more profound about what it means to be the Messiah. Rabbi Glenn, uh, Nathaniel, upon encountering Yeshua and hearing Yeshua reveal, you know, supernatural knowledge about him, calls Yeshua Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel. Those are powerful, meaningful terms, titles. Uh, please uh, talk to us about that. Sure. Now, whether Nathaniel just in his moment of excitement uh, meant it that way or not, when you think about it, Nathaniel calling him those three things, Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel, expresses who Yeshua is, who he always was, and who he will yet be. During Yeshua's sojourning on earth, he functioned as a rabbi. He taught he had disciples around him. But he existed from before the earth ever was. He is from eternity. And so he was always the son of God. So he's a rabbi. He always was the son of God. And at the end of the age, when he returns to the earth to take his throne, he will be the king of Israel. So uh, three questions for you. He is a rabbi. Question, do you obey his teachings? He is the son of God. Question, does he have your love and loyalty? He is the coming king. Question, will you subject yourself to him? All right, we're going to finish up with this last section, verse 50. Yeshua asked him, Nathaniel, do you believe this? Just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree, you will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Yeshua knew that he would do greater miracles, greater supernatural things than just see Nathaniel under a fig tree. The one supernatural 
thing he highlighted was his disciples seeing heaven open and the angels going up and down on Yeshua. Rabbi Jerry, what does that mean? And what's the significance for us today? Well, this is a clear allusion to Jacob's vision of a ladder or stairway in Genesis 28.12. We just had that in a recent parish a couple weeks ago. Leading from earth to heaven. Now, D.A. Carson in his commentary on John notes that it is important that these verses describe the angels going up and down on the Son of Man. I always found that phrase to be kind of interesting, and I did a little deep dive on it this week. But he argues from rabbinic tradition, grammatically, the same could be said about the angels in Jacob's vision, going down and up on him. What does that mean? It's not to be understood literally that Jacob or Messiah Yeshua is a literal ladder, but refers to the fact that Jacob and Messiah Yeshua are the receivers of divine revelation and encounters, right? Jacob has profound encounters with God. Messiah Yeshua literally is the Son of God. So how does this connect to the passage? Well, He's saying, you think you're impressed that I know you? Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Like, wait, read the rest of this gospel for the real miracles, right? Of all the amazing supernatural events culminating with Messiah Yeshua's resurrection, right? That'll be coming later. So what's the implication for us? Well, the disciples and by extension, all believers reading this gospel are promised that there is concrete divine revelation that Messiah Yeshua is the true Messiah confirmed by heaven itself. As Rabbi Glenn said earlier, we don't have a blind faith. All these things, all these supernatural things going on in scripture are real and confirm the supernatural reality of Messiah Yeshua. Heaven itself will open and reveal this truth. Actually, it already has in this chapter when the, uh, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Messiah Yeshua. John's Gospel in particular emphasizes that Messiah Yeshua is the Son of God and fully divine. There's a lot of emphasis in this Gospel. And so for those who want to see heaven open up and hear about divine revelation, this is the Gospel to be reading. People are attracted by miracles, by often dark miracles, the occult, um, the dark side of the supernatural. You want something more. You want heaven. You want angels. You want the supernatural in your life. Yeshua is the stairway on which the angels of God go up and down and bring access to God and open up heaven. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry.